This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. All righty. How many of you guys have heard of fascia before? Ooh, that's good. And how many of you guys watched the Olympics this past summer and saw some things with suction cup marks all over Michael Phelps and other athletes like that? All right. Um, so I'll explain some of why we use some of those modalities and some of the interventions for it. Um, I'm kind of directly responsible for that being there. I taught with Team USA back in May, just before the Olympics happened. And so I've worked with Team USA Swimming and Team USA Gymnastics in the past. And so some of those things are a product of some of the things that we're trying to institute more of in the sports medicine world, but it's also very applicable for the orthopedic world in the general private practice as well as other orthopedic clinical settings. Um, So we're going to talk a lot about fascia and why fascia is really this instrument for how your body moves efficiently as a machine in terms of all the working parts going together and synergistically firing at the right times. And so it's kind of the vehicle for that. And so we're going to really get into the building blocks of what that all looks like and kind of why it's really important for you to have healthy tissues, not just in the muscles or the tendons or ligaments or the discs that you're familiar with, but also some of this connective tissue stuff. And we're going to talk about why it's really, really important. Okay. So this is who we are. We are very much focused in strength conditioning. Both Kenny and I work a lot with athletes, very high-level athletes, professional athletes. But we also do things with the general public and try to really make um, movement an awareness issue more so than just an interventional thing that you come into physical therapy for. It's really trying to promote your body's kind of maintenance through kind of the things that you can do on a daily basis, not just coming in when you have a broken piece or part and things of that nature. Okay. Today, what we're going to try to accomplish is some of these objectives. What I really want to look at is some of the kind of science of fashion, introduce some of the things that maybe you haven't heard of in the past that you should maybe be aware of. And there's some of the things that we kind of can pay attention to in terms of the way your body moves in three-dimensional space, because that really matters in terms of the way the muscles work together with the connective tissue system itself. We're going to get into some of these kind of patterns that you can come to understand in your own body, some of the referred pain patterns that can come out of things like trigger points. How many of you guys have heard of trigger points before, right? Muscle knots, those little things that are kind of nodules in your body that hurt real bad when you roll over them or push on them or have somebody else push on them for you, hopefully. And then we'll look at some of the other patterns that happen in terms of some muscles are tight in your body and other muscles aren't working like they should. And when you can see these imbalances, you can really come to understand in your body why things hurt chronically and more consistently than other areas of your body. And you can really identify some of these patterns. And so Kenny's going to talk a little bit more about that and how to identify some of the patterns in yourself. And then we're going to teach you three different methods that we use both in the physical therapy kind of arena as well as things you can do for yourself at home to try to maintain and improve the mobility of your body using the fascial kind of guidance that you can see between the imbalances that will happen in the body. And we'll look for some of these things in you today. So we do, Kenny and I work a lot with athletes, and so some of the people that also buy into and believe in this fascial system being a really important component for the way your body moves, both in through the lifespan as well as in professional sports, are some of the people I've worked with even in the last year. So I taught at the San Francisco Giants Sports Medicine Conference last year, and then I worked with the Oakland A's uh, this past spring training, right? And the Chicago Cubs, you guys have heard of them too, right? And so I worked with them also in spring training this past year. And then the big one was Team USA last May, and so right before the Rio Olympics hit, we went and taught with uh, Team USA, mostly with their swimming group, but it kind of bled into some of the other sports as well. 
uh, the Detroit Lions I just did last month. And then you guys know this guy too. You know, you can see some marks on him every now and then too. And so these are people that really value some of this information that is different than the traditional mechanisms of musculoskeletal kind of anatomy where you're talking about the origin insertion of a muscle. And this muscle does this action. And if this is broken, we should look at that action and how to identify how to fix that. We're going to teach you guys how to like look a little bit deeper into the way things are connected and the way these things can relate in your body in terms of the imbalances that can come up. All right? Does that sound fun? Yeah. All right, good. Hopefully I can come up with the good answers that you guys are looking for today. All right, so basically the connective tissue system is something that when we go to anatomy as physical therapists or as an MD or as a nurse practitioner or as an RN, you spend probably about 10 to 15 minutes in your whole kind of medical school or you know, physical therapy curriculum learning about this system, which is the largest organ in the body. And it's a very complex, densely innervated, meaning nerves go all through these different fibers and sends a lot of information from your arms, your legs, your periphery up into your brain. Okay? And that's where you perceive a lot of the other problems that are going on in your body. So some of the things that happen in your body aren't in the muscle. You feel this muscle pain, this idea that you have a knot in your body, and sometimes it's not the knot that's in the muscle that's causing the pain going up into your brain. It's some of the other connective tissue elements. And those things can transmit and sense very, very small changes in tension throughout your system. Okay? And we'll show you some of the demonstrations of why that's really important to pay attention to. So when we go into anatomy, we learn about something like, that looks a little bit like this, right? How many of you guys have seen a schematic that looks like this for your skin, right? So if everybody looks at your skin, that top layer is called your epidermis, right? And that top layer has no blood supply. Basically, all the blood and nerves and all the really interesting stuff is here in your dermis, okay? Now, to get from your epidermis down to your dermis, it's only like 0.04 or 0.02 millimeters down. Very, very small, very, very superficial, okay? doesn't take that far to go down there. And so your epidermis is here, your dermis is here, and then we learn that your subcutaneous, your fat layer, is down there. And then the next layer down is your muscle. And that's kind of how you move from the connective tissue system into the next four months of your anatomy curriculum, where you learn about the origin, the insertion, the nervous innervation, and the blood supply for that muscle, and where those muscles kind of connect. And so we move past this really fast. And this is a very, very simplified schematic of the way the connective tissue system is in your body. Okay. If we look at that very superficial layer, that epidermis that we first saw, this is a histology slide showing you the corneal layer of the epidermis. And so every 14 to 28 days, you have a sloughing of this corneal layer of your skin, and it falls off. And you have new skin every 14 to 28 days. So that's kind of cool, right? You have new skin all the time. The not-so-cool part is 80% of the dust in your house is probably corneal layer of your skin. So what I say to people is maybe you should... Judge a little bit better of who you have come over to your house before you have dinner parties or things of that nature. Okay? But that corneal layer has no blood supply. The blood supply goes and starts right here in the dermis. Okay? And the dermis is where the really interesting action is, especially the receptor sites that feed different types of information from your skin, your periphery, up into your central nervous system, meaning your brain's interpretation of what's going on in your body as it relates to the surroundings. Okay? So don't get all lost in the, the names of these kind of glands and, and corpuscles and discs and things. Basically, this is sending pressure and touch information up into your brain saying, is this too hot? Is this too cold? Okay? Is this too much pressure? Is this too little pressure? What am I feeling when I feel things? And all that information is very, very superficially right under inside the top layer of the dermis of your body. All right? 
And so the blood supply is there. The nerves that innervate there and send pain information up to your brain are there, okay? Not just down in your muscles. They're actually in that dermal layer as well. So nociceptive input will go up into the brain from these layers because of these receptor sites. When you think about the areas of thickening, maybe you have um, the bottom of your feet or the palms, or sometimes we get callusing over different areas of your body, your corneal layer and some of the other other layers before the dermis get a little bit thicker. And so when you see some of that thickening, it means your body's responding to something in terms of pressures, and the type of stress that you put onto your body will relate in tissue changes throughout the body. But it's still very incomplete on how we understand that initial schematic of the epidermis, right, dermis, subcutaneous layer before you hit the muscle. And we're starting to see when we look at more and more in-depth anatomy in terms of the dissections that they're doing and the anatomy review of some of these kind of physiologic principles is that there's a lot of other things going on in those layers that we're not as well aware of or we weren't made um, attention made to that when we first initially learned it. Some of those layers are something like this called your superficial fascial membrane. Okay? So this is a membrane that separates some of the fat from some of the other fat. And again, this is just an artist's rendition of it. It's not very um, precise in terms of the way your body moves. But you have these other things that are going on that you didn't see in the, the initial diagram. All right? Below that second layer of fat, you're going to also have your deep fascial membrane. And between each of these membranes, you have a little bit of liquid. And that liquid is often what we call hyaluronic acid. All right? And that helps the mobility of each of these tissue layers to move and glide the way they're meant to be. Okay? What do you guys think happens as you age or as you get injured over the course of the, the timeline? Of, yeah, you dry out a little bit, right? We lose water content and you start to get sticky. So picture if I had like four or five different pieces of paper. We're going to use tissue paper right here because it's right here in front of me. If I want to actually get mobility to improve, it's not about trying to stretch these pieces of paper. How long do you think it would take for me to stretch out these pieces of paper right here and get mobility to improve? Could I do it? No, it would be hard, right? It's not going anywhere. I have to spend a long, long time to try to get those tissue layers to move better. But now picture there's honey between these pieces of tissue paper. As you age, that's what happens, and it gets sticky, right? But what if I was able to move because there was better fluid between each piece of paper? And that's what you want to do to restore your mobility. To improve your mobility, it's about the layers between the layers. Does that make sense to you guys? So it's about the fluid dynamics that are in between these different fascial layers that allows things to move better. Okay? So often we try to do these things called you know, stretching, foam rolling, um, soft tissue work, going to massage, doing some different tool-assisted things, maybe some things that leave marks that look like cups that are you know, Michael Phelps type thing. And all those things are trying to promote fluid changes in there, not to lengthen the tissues. Okay? And I'll show you guys what the research says about stretching and the actual lengthening of tissues in just a second. Okay? You guys following some of this stuff? You guys are starting to see the three-dimensional nature of it. It's not just this, 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 and it's stuck there. It's how everything glides and moves one on top of the other. Okay? And you can kind of picture this for those of you that like to eat healthy and you take the skin off your chicken, right? Sorry for the vegans in the room, but you're going to take that skin, you're going to peel it off, and you have all this stringy stuff. And all that stringy stuff links each layer to the other layer, and that retinacular cutie is what it's called, kind of is a ligament that checks your skin from running off your body. Okay? It kind of stops it. So say, okay, I want nice, good fluid dynamics between each layer, but I want to have an actual check, an endpoint, to make sure my skin doesn't fall off my body. Okay? And so some of that sliding is available because of the fluid, and then these little stringy things check that motion as you go through the normal mobility that you do during the day.
So this is what we probably should have learned when we went through anatomy. Something that's a little bit more complex that shows each of these other layers to understand that it's not just trying to get things to kind of move and stretch through these different tissue layers, but the gliding of one layer upon the other. Meaning, I need fluid to be between this superficial fascial membrane here and this deep fascial membrane there. And more fluid between that and the other fat that separates it from the muscle. And all those layers, right? This is, again, an artist's rendition simplified. You have thousands of these little layers that are all laid on top of each other, and each of those layers needs fluid between them. That's why things like hydration is what? Important or not important? Really important. That's why things like sleep is what? Important or not important? Okay? Nutrition is what? Important or not important? And most importantly, movement is what? Important or not important? Really important, because if you stop moving, what do you think happens to these tissue layers? You start to get sticky again, right? Think about your body not moving for a week because you had shoulder surgery and you got put in a sling. Maybe four weeks, maybe six weeks. Okay? How many of you guys have had shoulder surgery in the past? It's terrible, right? And you go to get out of that sling and you haven't moved it for six weeks. Each of those layers are starting to get really sticky one layer to the next. All right? And so when we get better improvements in motion, it's not actually lengthening each of these tissue layers. It's trying to get mobility to improve between them. Does that make sense? Excellent. So we are kind of handcuffed by trying to learn this big, dense information called anatomy in a four-month period when you're first introduced to anatomy. And we learn it really, really simplistically in terms of origin to insertion on something like the bicep. And it's very much like a robot moves. So when we learn this, we have to learn it and digest it because it's so much information coming at us in this box. But do you think that box is really the way the human body moves? Okay, it's not. Okay, it's very simplistic. And it's easy for us to digest so that we can learn these things, but it's not the actual way you need to understand the way your body is built to synergistically fire all these things together at the same time. For that to happen, you have to look at it more like the new school Terminator. How many of you guys seen the Terminator series, right? So the old ones from the 80s look like that because that's you know before computer technology was able to produce some things like this. So basically when you look at the new school terminator, everything's fluid, everything's dynamic, everything kind of fluidly moves together and synergistically acts together. Okay? And that's kind of the way the human body really is. So when you go to learn anatomy and when you go to try to practice medicine with patients, sometimes we as doctors get stuck in this. And pretty quickly you have to move and understand how it moves like that. Okay? And so until you look at the whole body in a holistic way, you're going to miss some of these things that are working together. Okay? So the functions of muscles are really interesting, and we learn these things about origin and to insertion to make an action happen. So like the bicep starts here and finishes here, and it makes your elbow flex, right? Everybody try that. Stick your arm out. Okay? Bicep, you feel that? Okay? Now bend your elbow, right? It contracts a little bit. And that's great, but how many other muscles do you think are working at the same time? A whole bunch, right? There's three other elbow flexors. There's other... Um, forearm flexors that cross the elbow that also synergistically help and then your antagonists mean the other side of the muscles are also stabilizing to make sure the movement is smooth and coordinated okay so a there's a lot of things going on at the same time and then b as you move through space your muscles change the action that they actually have so as you move your hip i'm going to move away from the microphone you're going to flex your hip past 90 degrees some of the muscles that go this way now make it go that way Okay, if that makes sense to you. So some of the muscles that are acting in one way as you move into space will change the actions entirely. Okay? So some of the things that we look at, we need to kind of shape in terms of a more three-dimensional structure of how we look at the way the body moves. Okay? 
And it really is interesting because that structure and that stickiness that happens in some of the tissues that I was talking about before really kind of drives home some of the ideas that are kind of promoting the newer way of looking at the way the body moves. Meaning, how many of you guys have heard of tendonitis, right? Now, tendonitis is a very common term that's thrown around, but tendonitis usually only lasts anywhere from six to eight weeks. After eight weeks, or sometimes three months, four months, six months, some people come in and they say they've had tendonitis for the last two years in terms of their hamstring or their patellar tendon or their shoulder. It's not really a tendonitis anymore. Basically, at that point, the tendon is starting to degenerate, and the stickiness that initially was the problem is just binding down those pieces of paper. Okay? And so at that point, it's not a tendonitis, it's a tendinopathy. And so we call it a tendinosis. Okay? And the stickiness that started very superficially now has affected the tendon. And so you have to do, it, uh, do things to treat that a little bit differently. Okay? And so we look at the way the body moves at that point as trying to stir things up that didn't heal the right way instead of trying to calm down inflammation. Okay? So when we talk about the connected tissue system, this is often what happens to the body and the reason why a problem that will happen to you, you know, 10 years ago kind of resurfaces over and over and over again. Okay? Because what happens is you have some type of inflammation or trauma that happens. Say it's a shoulder strain. You got bicipital tendonitis, right? You lifted something or you reached for something and you got a strain of your bicep tendon and it caused inflammation in there. What happens is your connective tissue system here comes in and says, okay, I'm going to try to fix that and lay down some more connective tissue. tissue. And we're going to talk about the building blocks of those in just a second. Those building blocks are kind of called collagen, and collagen cross bonds and gets real sticky. That's the honey effect that I was talking about between the pieces of paper. That leads to increase in viscosity, meaning things are getting stickier and they don't move as well as they did before. That affects kind of the way the body moves entirely in that synergistic pattern we just mentioned. And that leads to the way you move in terms of compensations. Okay? And those compensations lead to something like, for a bicipital tendonitis, now you have neck pain. Okay? So in addition to a shoulder problem, your neck starts to get stiff. And then you lose the ability to go into lateral flexion of your neck. Okay? So you guys can see how this starts to affect up the chain and then probably down the chain as well. You might start getting things like carpal tunnel 10 years later because you don't move quite the same as you did before that. All right? And so you get this cycle to kind of come in and really kind of stir itself up and kind of lead to other pain and dysfunction up and down what we call the chain. And we'll talk about the chain in a second too. So when we talk about some intervention of physical therapy, meaning when do we want to intervene with tools or with our hands doing massage or cross friction or foam rollers? How many of you guys have used a foam roller in the past, right? Very popular in gyms. When's the appropriate time to start working on those things because of that inflammation, because of that trauma, because of that's when the actual collagen or connective tissue is going to start to get densification to happen, meaning stickiness between your pieces of paper. And what the science basically says is between day 7 and day 10, that's when you really want to start working on moving some of the tissue better. Now, what happens when you get bicipital tendonitis? How often do you guys see that you don't want to actually reach for that bowl or that box up in the top of the cupboard? How long does that last for? Sometimes two months, sometimes five months, sometimes six months, sometimes a year, right? And so when you start losing mobility like that, it affects things up and down the chain. And that's what fascia is all about. That's why fascia is so important in terms of the body's movement and restoration of that movement. You guys following me still? Good. So I'm going to talk about some of these building blocks, and we're going to get into them just because it's very, very interesting stuff. And to have an awareness of this, it helps you kind of formalize your idea of how to make this better in yourself. So these are just some of the components of your fascia, your connective tissue system. Okay? The most important ones that I'm going to draw your attention to are collagen, 
Because collagen is kind of that sticky structure that makes things all kind of string together. I'll show you some histology slides of that. And then really, really important is ground substance, okay? And I'll talk about that in just a second in relation to the way viscosity works in the body, like I was talking about. Elastic fibers are kind of cool, too. Everybody take your skin and pull your skin up, okay? And then let your skin go. And the reason it comes back to the way it was is because of elastin, okay? How many of you guys have heard of a disorder called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome? Nothing, nobody? No. Yeah. So it's kind of a syndrome where you have changes in your elastin, basically, and you don't have the same type of contours of that elastin that allow it to recoil and allows for kind of the normal stability across joints and across some of the soft tissue structures. So this is kind of what that connected tissue system matrix looks like, meaning this is the way it is all throughout that dermis and epidermis and kind of subcutaneous layer in your body, kind of like what we saw earlier. And so you can see collagen is these white, wavy, kind of kinky things going all over. Your fibroblasts are these cells that make all this stuff through there. Elastin is this orange, I am slightly colorblind, so it might be yellow, um, stringy stuff there. And then ground substance is this abstract thing, which is the white space. There's the spaces between everything else that suspends all these things. So think about ground substance as this kind of spongy stuff that just kind of floats it all around. Okay, And we'll come back to that in just a sec. So from a histology slide, meaning you're looking at this under a microscope in a very thin slice of that, you can see collagen here is in pink, and it strings everything to everything else. So collagen you can think of as spider web, okay, to simplistically put it. Now think about spider web, though, in the early morning it has dew all over it, because that's a more kind of complete picture of the way collagen and the stringiness of it is really kind of fluidly kind of dynamic. So it can kind of slide and move, and it's not stringy spider web that's been there for, you know, five or six weeks and you just haven't wiped down the, the cupboards or wiped out the garage or whatever. And that stuff is really kind of able to plastically slide up and down the chains that are connecting each of those pieces together. Meaning there's a lot of plasticity, meaning it's able to kind of dynamically change throughout your movement patterns. Okay? You can see the dots are still your fibroblasts and then your stringy purple things there, that's the elastin again. Okay? Now picture if this was a really rigid structure. Okay? If you had all this stuff connecting everything to everything else, do you think you would move at all? Right? We'd be stuck right where we are. But your body is that second terminator. Remember how fluid-filled that is, how dynamic it can move, and how synergistically all of those things work together. Okay? That's why we have the ability to move throughout. These bonds will break, reattach, and then when you come back down, they'll come back, slide again, and reattach again. Okay? So think about it as a really high level of plasticity, a lot of ability to change. Okay? And this is kind of what it looks like. So there's a really cool French hand surgeon that goes in with a camera when he does some hand surgeries, and he takes pictures of this and blows them up. And you can see this is collagen in vivo, meaning this is live tissue. It's blood-filled. It's warm. It's very different than what we learn in the cadaver lab when we learn anatomy, which looks like that, right? This is what we learn when we learn anatomy in medical school and PT school and all the different things we do, right? Does that look the same as that? Not even close, okay? It's hard to wrap your head around this, A, because it's very expensive to get really good cadavers that are fresh and not embalmed and things like that, but also B, because once you break through that spider web there, do you think it ever comes back together? It's done, right? And that's what you have in your brain sometimes when you're thinking about motion, okay? You're trying to break up these fibrous adhesions, and we're starting to see that the research says it takes a lot more load and a lot more time than what you're doing with stretching or foam rolling or some other modalities to break apart bonds like this. They are dynamically sliding up and down each other, and they're not meant to break. They're just meant to slide. 
And that's where your movement comes in. That's why movement is so important because that you don't want to get sticky. You want to stay continuously hydrated and very, very dynamic. Does that make sense? Good. So it's not this. This is what we learn, and you got to get your heads out of that a little bit because that's not real live tissue. This is the way it looks, okay? So fascia is really important because it makes all these linkages come together. And we'll show you some of the muscles that are linked together. How many of you guys practice yoga? Any yogi, yogis in here? How many of you guys know what downward dog is? Okay. So downward dog, I'm not going to demonstrate. Maybe I'll have Kenny demonstrate. No, that's a bad idea too. <laughs> but downward dog is a linkage of probably about 17 different muscles all up and down the back, down the back of your legs, all the way to your heels, and it starts way up at the scalp. Okay? And so all those things are what we call a kinetic chain, meaning things are linked together and synergistically fired together, and that chain is what you need to think of when you have problems. Because sometimes I can't go down and touch my toes, not because my hamstrings are tight, but because sometimes my nerves are tight. And so that's the fascia that's not allowing the nerve to glide through like it was meant to. Or sometimes it's actually my plantar fascia that's really restrictive, and so that's why I can't go down and touch my toes. And you think about my back, my back, my back, that's why I can't touch my toes. But it's actually the whole chain up from the back of your legs all the way up to your scalp and the way that looks. And Kenny's going to show you some slides that really demonstrate that well. So the other thing that fascia provides in addition to this kinetic chain linkages is kind of a structural support system, okay? How many of you guys run or have run in your past and gotten any type of lateral knee pain that maybe you thought of as IT band syndrome? Have you heard of that? So an IT band issue. How many of you guys have foam rolled your IT bands and it hurts like no other? Yeah, it's terrible. So the IT band, you can think of kind of like a sheet, and that sheet separates, if you tuck it in, your quad, which is the front of your thigh, from your hamstring, which is the back of your thigh. And so that fascial sheet is an encapsulating support system to separate these two compartments and make sure things are gliding and moving the way they're supposed to, but separate one from the other. So going around and teaching a little bit more, I go and stay at hotels where they tuck the sheets in way too tight, and I'm a little claustrophobic, and I need my toes to wiggle at night. Okay? And when I can't wiggle my toes at night, it becomes a problem. And you can think of the IT band as that sheet that's very similar to that sheet that's tucked in too tight. So when we roll up and down the IT band, yeah, that might help some of that fluid dynamics between each of those paper layers, but it's not going to untuck the sheet, okay? And that's why sometimes we use things like suction cups to untuck the sheet, to pull on the sheet and tug it out a little bit, okay? And we'll talk more about that in just a second. But think about this big tissue layer that looks almost like an REI tent. How many of you guys go camping? Think about a big nylon tent and how thick that is. How long would it take for you to stretch that out, Okay. Maybe half your lifetime, okay? So when you think about the IT band, you're not going to stretch an IT band. You're actually going to try to promote more mobility and less compression of it towards where the other structures are. Again, fluid between the layers, okay? You guys see where I'm trying to hit home on this fluid dynamics between each of these layers? So back to these building blocks. Collagen, basically the big take-home message here is that you start to lose the dynamic kind of plastic collagen that you're built with when you're young, as you age, you start to get more and more mature collagen that no longer has as much plasticity, meaning you get less and less ability for it to be dynamic. That's not good, right? There's nothing we can really do about that. You can keep yourself healthy, you can exercise, you can drink lots of water, but no matter what, you're going to decrease these ratios over time, okay? So you got to work harder and harder and harder. I tell my patients, that's why you retire when you're 60 or 65 or whatever age it is. Your body is your full-time job, right? That's what happens, okay? Because we've got to fight against it somehow. All right. 
I know. That'd be great. I'd like that job. All right. And then we have this other stuff. Remember I talked about the glycoaminoglycans, the, the, basically the protein sponge that suspends all these other structures. Okay? And this is a really important sponge that basically grabs your fluid that's kind of built up excessively when you have overuse or you have kind of an injury that happens and grabs some of these molecules and transports it down to lymphatic drainage to flush it out. You guys heard of your lymphatic drainage system, your lymph nodes and things like that. So it tries to transport it to these pipes and then get it back into the circulatory system. Okay? That's a normal living healthy tissue. Now when you get excessive overuse or you get trauma to happen, there's so much stuff that it's trying to transport. These protein sponges try to soak up so much fluid that it gets a bottleneck to these pipes and it can't fit in the pipes anymore because the molecules get too big. Okay? And that's when you get kind of that thickened tissue, that kind of edema. You guys know what pitting edema is? It's a little bit more spongy, thick, viscous type tissue. And the reason for that is the glycoaminoglycans have grabbed so much stuff it can't flush it out to the lymphatic drainage because you're getting a bottleneck. Okay? In simplified terms. So it's kind of like the ketchup bottle, right? So when you want things to move better, what do we have to do to things like ketchup? Okay? You have to put energy into the system to get viscous tissues to move better. All right? And so the viscosity will reduce as you add energy into that system. So that's really important. So that process is called thixotropy. Basically, you're adding energy to make things less viscous, move better. That's why movement is what? Really important. Okay? Really important. These other ideas are things that relate back to how long you need to spend doing this. So in terms of a time management, when you're talking about the myofascial layers, those layers of the epidermis, dermis, okay, superficial fascial membrane, deep fascial membrane, before you hit even the muscle, you need to spend at least 120 seconds on each of those little areas. Okay? Now, there used to be studies that said, oh, we, we can't do that in 120 seconds. You need to spend at least 10 minutes on that. And these are older studies that came out studying rat tendon tails. So they basically suspended a weight with a rat tendon tail to see how long it would take to get some creep and hysteresis, so lengthening in those tissues. But for you in the myofascial layers, you're thinking about something along 120 seconds or so. And so when we stretch, okay, these tissues, we talk about the paper and the effect of that. You need to spend a lot longer than 120 seconds to get anything to actually stretch for a muscle or a tendon, okay? So when you actually stretch and increase your range of motion, you're not lengthening the tissue at all. What you're doing is, like what we showed you with the pieces of paper, you're allowing each of those layers to glide a little bit better one upon another, okay? And you have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of layers that need to be able to glide like that, okay? So a lot of the research basically says that stretching is not lengthening tissues, okay? So the take home from this slide is that stretching is good, but it's actually not going to lengthen a tissue. It's going to promote mobility via probably fascial changes, okay? And then it's going to promote a lot of changes in where? In your brain's perception of what tightness is. So at the end of the day, you need to trick your brain on what it feels tension to be in your body. And that's why very simple kind of movement activities will promote really great changes in range of motion in your body, okay? So this is kind of the, the research basically says that if you had to, you know, spend six weeks doing a stretching activity, you actually don't change the link tension ratio at all, okay? That's what some of the research shows you guys. It actually stays exactly the same. So the actual lengthening of tissues is probably not possible on the amount of time that you're spending doing stretching, even if you are a yogi. So sorry about that. All right. But that's not a big deal because at the end of the day, it's not just the way you move for stretching to try to lengthen tissues. Everybody take your right arm and go up as high as you possibly can, okay? Now, 
as I stretch, I'm a little tight in my lats, but I also feel the back of my shoulder. How many of you guys feel the back of your shoulder? Right? So that's actually not an issue of lengthening at all. Go and drop your hands. So when you guys did that, how many of you guys felt the back of your shoulder more than the front of your shoulder? Raise your hands again if you felt the back of the shoulder. So that's an issue of space, of folding, right? So sometimes we don't need to stretch to increase range of motion. We need the tissues on the other side of the joint to be more mobile and comes back to fluid and comes back to space, right? So picture you're doing the laundry and you have this you know, drawer of towels, and I hate towels and folding towels, and I always try to get an extra towel in there. I have to use my hip to try to knock it in, right, because I don't fold very well. But if I take my time and I fold all those towels just right, I go to push that drawer and it just slides right in. Okay? And that's the same thing as your shoulder joint here. If you have enough space here because everything's got more mobility because of fluid, because of space in terms of the health of the tissues, everything slides in just right. Okay? So sometimes stretching isn't just for lengthening, it's for actually promoting mobility on the other side of the joint. And so this all comes back to everything is linked to everything else, right? Synergies is what we talked about earlier on. And so when you think about this model, okay, right, we have this beautiful place called Berkeley here in California. And in Berkeley, they don't have a Toys R Us toy store. They have these types of toy stores that only sell smart kid toys, right? (laughs) And if you push on any rod or you pull on any string in that particular model, it changes the pressure and tension of every other rod and every other string in that model. You guys see what I mean? And that's the way your body moves. That's the way everything works together, okay? So when we look at the way you come to physical therapy, we understand, okay, you have this disc issue, right? We, everybody gets a disc issue at some point. And we have an L5 herniation, and oh my God, my life's over, okay? Well, everything that goes into this L5 herniation is distributed in terms of the forces up and down the entire chain. So an L5 herniation isn't the end of the world for all people, okay? It just means that this particular area is wearing down a little bit faster than this, But guess what? All those forces are distributed really, really well because the design is amazing, okay? And you just have to learn how to move again in terms of distribution of those pressures, all right? And so we think about it a lot when we work on the joints, the arthrokinematics of things, but sometimes we need to actually relate that to the soft tissue structures as well. Meaning fascially, if one area gets a lot of densification after that shoulder surgery or that bicep tendonitis that was five years ago, you need to understand that it's affecting your neck. And that neck is affecting the way your shoulder moves. And that shoulder is affecting the way your ribs move. Okay? And we'll show you guys those pictures in just a second as well. All right. When we talk about some of the other things that are deep and beneath the fascial layers, meaning superficial fascial membrane, deep fascial membrane, we have the muscle trigger points. Okay? And we talked about trigger points real, real quickly. But basically, you get these areas that have excessive levels of calcium buildup. Okay? And you get decreased nutrition to these particular muscle areas. And they get these little kind of small contractures. Okay? This is an electron micrograph showing 240 times the size of that muscle. You can see the striations of your skeletal muscle. And this area is a trigger point. Okay? And that thickness, that fibrosis, that ability for those fibers to not move now creates some stickiness. Okay? And that's within the muscle belly itself. So we talked about the stickiness of each of the layers in the fascia. And now there's also fascia within each of the myofibrils of the actual muscle. And so those get sticky too. And when that happens, you have a lot of excessive kind of stimulation of the nerves that say something's wrong to your brain again. And the brain's the control mechanism. It sends signals down saying, yeah, something is wrong. Okay? So everybody take your hand and go, just take your right, sorry, left hand and grab your right forearm and just run across the muscles on the top of your forearm. Those are the things you're using when you're on the computer 12 hours a day that we do these days. And you guys feel any knots in there, any thickened areas? 
So feel for an area that has a little bit of a, a kind of a top band, meaning a stringiness to it. And usually within that top band, we have a little nodule. Okay? And that hyper-irritable nodule is what we call a trigger point. Okay? Some of you also have them in your neck or your traps. So if you don't have them in your forearm, reach for the back of your shoulder. Everybody has one here for the most part. Okay? Push on that, and you feel that little lump, that little nodule there. Now, if you push into that nodule and it has a referred pain pattern, meaning it doesn't just hurt there, it actually hurts somewhere else, refers up or down, that's called an active trigger point. Okay? So we have active trigger points and latent trigger points. And basically, we want to treat both, but those are those densification. Those are those thickenings that I'm talking about of the fascia between each of the layers, and they happen in the muscles as well. Okay? And a lot of research is showing that that particular densification sends information, again, from the periphery up to the brain and says something's bad. And the brain has this kind of central sensitization, meaning it gets really, really hypersensitive to all the things that happen in the area because of it. Okay? And that's a feedback loop that kind of stays chronically kind of cyclic, meaning once something bad happens, you get stressed even, and that particular kind of chain activates over and over and over again. That's why they usually turn into these chronic trigger points. Okay? And we have them all over the body. Your shoulder has ones on the back of your shoulder blade. And if you lay on a, a ball or a roller, sometimes you'll feel not just pain in the muscle of the back of the shoulder blade, you'll feel pain down your arm. How many of you guys have done that? You lay on a knot or a ball or um, a foam roller, and you don't feel it just there when you're rolling through your back. You feel it in the front of your shoulder or you feel it up in your neck. Okay? So those are very, very common as well. So these are just some of those common trigger points. And you can see pain referral isn't just from the joint itself. It's from sometimes the muscles within the surrounding tissues of that joint. So sometimes people come into me and they say, oh, I have an SIJ dysfunction, meaning sacroiliac dysfunction. Or I have terrible hip pain. I've had it for 10 years. And I push on this little muscle, which is gluteus medius here, and they have this pain that comes right back to their hip pain. And, ooh, that's my pain. I'm not touching their joint at all. It's not a hip joint issue. Sometimes, unfortunately, people actually go through hip replacements. And then six months later, that same pain comes back because they never looked at trigger points. Okay? So I'm not saying that happens a lot, but it does happen. And so looking at trigger points, which is these little densifications within the muscle belly, that fascia between each of those muscle fibers, will really affect your pain transmission from the periphery back up to, you, again, your brain, the control center. What's kind of cool is we're starting to look at this more on like diagnostic ultrasound. So when you see, this is up here at the upper trap. So this is that epidermis. This is your dermis. This is some of the layers of that fascial membrane stuff. And then you have your epimyceum of the muscle. This is your upper trapezius muscle. This is the fascia that separates the upper trapezius muscle here to the muscle beneath it called your supraspinatus. And so we can see a little bit of a darkened region here. See the circle bubble that was kind of like that electron micrograph before? Showing you that there's a bit of a densification here. And it's changed. And we call it hypoechoic nature of this tissue. And that identifies an area that's a little bit in dysfunction. Okay? So it's not quite the same type of tissue as others. So we're starting to get better as technology improves to identify some of these things. Ten years ago, we used to think that trigger points were kind of, eh, it was kind of fringe medicine. It wasn't really real medicine even. And we're starting to identify some of these things. And I'll show you guys some MRI images in just a second on some of the other things. And so Kenny's now going to talk about the way these chains are all linked up together. Hi, everyone. Lord, my part's a lot shorter. I kept it a lot more simpler. I can't memorize all the things that the product talks about. My memory went away with my hair. That's kind of my excuse. Um, when you talk about trigger points, you talk about individual traditional anatomy, you're looking at one muscle at a time, one joint at a time, right? 
but it's not how we naturally move unless you're, you're a really good dancer and you practice doing the robot. You know, we, we kind of focus on reaching, grabbing, you know, moving our limbs in a coordinated fashion, right? And so we actually have, not only do we have cells that are programmed to work in, in concert with a certain pattern, but we'll find that our muscles kind of work and are long, lengthened along a certain line. And the, not only the muscle, but the fascia that connects them will also be thickened together. So in this, this example here, we have a picture of chimpanzee, monkey, something hanging from a tree, but similar anatomy to us. And you look at you know, the biceps, the forearm muscles, the pecs, kind of forming this one long line. So the exciting part for me as a movement nerd, I'm thinking, well, if that animal had a, an issue with, let's say, the biceps tendon, you know, from looking at it just anatomically, we think, okay, strengthen the biceps, right? Get that one muscle to be stronger. But what if there was a problem with the pecs or even lower down the abdominals? Not that same long, that line, if the abdominals or pecs were weak, maybe the biceps is overcompensating. So you're really going above and below. So if you can get one thing out of today, you're thinking, well, yeah, we have maybe a rotator cuff issue or a L5, S1 disc herniation. Treat that one area, but treat above and below it. Does that make sense? And what we're trying to get at is like, yes, everything is connected. I think that as an oversimplification that doesn't do it justice. Everything is connected in a specific way, right? So you'll find these lines. And Thomas Myers was actually um, a massage therapist who felt these lines. And so he was kind of thinking a little bit outside the box as well. And he's seeing these patterns, right? So going over, oh, how many quotes do you have in here? All right, so myofascial tracts, basically length of the lines. We're not thinking just muscle, although you do have to work on the muscles. That's what the trigger points are. That's what they mean, isolated tendonitis is. But you can go beyond that. What else does that muscle connect to? Or what direction of movement this is the exciting part. What's the movement we're trying to help? And so in this case, you're pulling downwards. And if you're pulling downwards, we're going to think about, if I'm going to help you with that motion, we are going to strengthen all those muscles along that same line. And we're going to help the coordination movement along that line. Okay? So another common one, superficial backline. So we talked about your ability to bend over. Well, I'm just going to go over the part I want to talk about first. So if you've heard of plantar fasciitis, the bottom of your foot you have pain in the bottom of your foot, and that's one of the few parts of fascia that we actually talked about before, because it's, it's obvious there, it's thick, it's really hard to cut away, so we have to point it out. All right? Otherwise, we just cut fascia away when we're teaching an anatomy class. But with a plantar fascia at the bottom, the common treatment, yes, you massage the fascia, but what else do you do? Right? We stretch out the calf right above it. If you don't stretch out the calf, this stays tight, and it's going to pull down here. So you can even go beyond that, stretch above, and then the, even the next, the hamstrings, right? Oftentimes, if the hamstrings are tight, you might have heard, what's a common issue after that? Back pain. So if someone's bending over, and I'm going to have to step out for a second, but if you're bending over and your hips can't bend over, where am I going to bend from? I'm going to bend from back. And we all know not to bend, lift up like this, so you want to be able to bend, move the hips back by helping improve the mobility here, which then you don't have to move as much here. So that's where everything is connected. And that's to me, is the exciting part, because it's not about treating one segment, but 
how you move. And that's, that's the really fun part. Okay? Um, this is just a, a, an, an, um, a picture of the anatomy of it. And you'll see the actual connection. You know, it's, it's nebulous when you say everything's connected. But this, you actually see it. And unfortunately, when I learned anatomy too, it's like, oh, just cut it away. It's not labeled. It's not in the textbook. But it's really important to see. And you'll see, like, even going from here, all the way up, going all up to the body, up to the neck. Right? And that's why sometimes when you're moving from your back or moving from your hip, you can actually get a little referred pain up here because there is a direct connection. And so we talked about how to move, you know, improve the layers here, improve the sliding and the gliding. That's, that's the fun stuff that we get to do in the clinic, whether it's you know, a specific kind of massage, using the suction cups, using tools to kind of scrape, using a foam roller, um, or also just moving more. Right? And that's where yoga is so helpful. Because it's making you move through all these motions that you're not moving through in your daily routine. If you're staying seated like this all the time, guarantee your hip flexors will be tight, your hamstrings will be tight. We'll see these common patterns that we'll talk about in a second. Okay? Another common one, lateral line. You already loaded up the slides on this one. Simple. Um, unless you're doing like Taekwondo and you're doing like sidekicks. We're not going to move as much here, a lot of side bending, but I would say focus on the forwards and backwards. That's more fun to talk about, and I'm going to skip to that one, the spiral line. This one's great because you talk about any powerful athletic motion. Um, I don't know if you, I don't know if you golf, but it's not as easy <laughs> as it looks. You're really doing a lot of rotation, and then you're whipping that power and turning, right? And if you don't have that rotation, where are you going to move from, right? One little joint that's going to blow out. You're going to hurt your shoulder. You're going to hurt your knee. But if you can rotate through your entire body, that's going to make that movement so much easier. Right? So this is just a good illustration of all the different muscles. So it's, when we're looking at someone and how they move, as a physical therapist, we're not usually focused on just one part. Usually you know, you have, you're going to have either back pain, shoulder pain. That's the most common ones I'll see with golfers. You know? So even if you have an issue there, fine. Okay, we'll, we'll take care of it. We'll let it rest, we'll stretch that, but we'll, we'll definitely help with your trunk rotation going all the way down to the foot, right? And that's where just being active is going to help you because when you're rotating, you're pushing off your foot, which is going to help move your hips, which will help move your spine, and then that's going to help your shoulders kind of move along with it. So we're not going to go, you know, one at a time, you know, unless you want to do that in your dance moves, but you want to just spin together, move together, Okay. Any questions so far? Feel free to ask questions. We'll have time at the end. I know we're running a little bit short on time. But it, it, for us, it's fascinating. So like I said, it, when you're moving, think about how the joints above and below or off to the side are also moving in concert with the particular area that you might be having a problem with. When you're stretching, don't just work on one muscle at a time, you know, unless you have all the time in the world. Like, but, you know, if, you, if you're, what I call vanity days, when I'm going to the gym and I want to work out one muscle, and I'm about to go to the beach, or, you know, back in the day when I was getting ready for a date, like, i got to get my pecs going, I'm going to do my push-ups, or, you know, that's fine if you have the time to do that. Um, and you can get one muscle to be a little bit bigger or stronger, you know, over time. But if you're going to be more efficient, or if you're going to do this every single day, Work on all your muscles together. So work on specific motions. And that's what this is getting to. So in this case, you're doing like some Tai Chi motion where you're just turning sideways. Or you're going to go dance and you're going to move, right? Or you're going to lift up something like this and pull something like this versus here 
here doing wrist curls. Maybe I've seen some people in the gym doing this. It's usually guys because we're, we're trying to make impressions here, you know? So the, the actual physiology behind everything is actually really fascinating. Um, but if you think of things like slings, this is what really allows us to generate power, you know? Instead of just moving, like, like I said, one muscle time, and you know, we, we have things called minor muscle tests where we'll assess how strong you are with one joint movement. This is what's really fascinating. Imagine like a javelin thrower or a discus thrower. As someone winds up, you're kind of creating a pre-stretch, and then the, you can blissfully launch a weight really far, really fast. You know, Think of a, a baseball pitcher being able to throw a 100-mile-per-hour fastball. <laughs> That's really amazing, but no way could I just use my arm, right? And so we'll see studies where a baseball pitcher who has less balance in their leg is more likely to hurt their shoulder or elbow later that season. Now, everything really is connected, but in that very specific way, you know? So it's, you have to go beyond just treating that one specific body part. You want to see how your whole body moves together, right? So that everything is nice and smooth. Low back, why does the low back um, have pain so often? It's that connection, right? So if you look at that, that spiral line before, and all the forces cross the body, that's why core exercise is so important. More specifically, core exercises that cross the body, right? So maybe, you know, back in the day, we, we recommended lots of sit-ups, kind of crunching. We don't do that as much anymore. It's, it's nice to have that nice little six-pack. But more importantly, how do you move, how do you coordinate rotation? Or how do you resist rotation, right? And so really stabilize your back. And so I think it does scar up a lot right here. And when it scars up, we have all those physiological changes that Gepardo was talking about. And that's where it's helpful if you go into therapy. We can help you loosen it up. But if you begin to learn how to move your back and move the joints above and below, it's really going to help you out long term and prevent the injury from coming back again. Okay? Oh, arrow. No. Okay. Um, posture syndrome. So, here's where it's going to get a little more practical. Um, because most of us, you know, we end up sitting a lot, or maybe the newer generations are always on their phones, you end up having this common movement pattern or postural pattern. So, Dr. Yan is one of the first to really describe this. Um, I think you can look over this later. I think I'm going to skip through this. But the biggest thing is what we call the, the cross syndrome. And this is, this is really simple to remember. So, if we're looking at just the upper body, Right? Your head is normally a little bit more forward. Rarely are you kind of like this, unless you're you know, being a pompous and you're trying to you know, impress people. But most of us kind of more relaxed here. What happens here? What's, what's going on with my neck? It's, it's a little bit stretched out in the front, right? But if it's stretched out in the front, what does it mean in the back? It's a little bit shortened up here. So where's a common area that feels good to massage and stretch out? Right in the back of the neck. Right? So you can feel, if you put your thumb right at the base of your skull, right? usually it feels pretty good. Now, if it's really tight, you have a, a nerve that goes with those muscles, and you're going to feel something zinging down you know, half your head. But if you lie down and you just kind of massage and pull up right there, it feels pretty good. And that's because those muscles are always working to keep you here. Right? We need to stretch those out. And so if we're looking, talking about the cross syndrome, um, at the top, this part is, sh is shortened. This part is lengthened, right? This part also pulling forward. Now, shoulders kind of hunched forward. 
And so those muscles, why does it feel good to massage here? Because they're always working. And so the simple treatment is just do everything that's opposite. Pull your shoulder blades back, elongate your head, tuck in that chin. Right? And so when we call it a cross syndrome, it's, it's easier. We can just, we, we're, from a physical therapist standpoint, we already know, all right, strengthen here, massage here, strengthen the low back, right, which pulls the shoulder blades back, and the pecs stretch. Right? Basically do the opposite of what we're always doing out here. Right? And that's going to help with this. Okay. One thing I kind of glossed over when we look at the lines, when you raise your arm, we talked about earlier about how the tissues have to fold in the back. So this time, put one hand on your rib cage, and on the other arm, raise your arm all the way up. Do you feel your ribs moving? Right? It's nice if you're doing it on purpose. But what happens all the time is that we get so tight in our pecs that when I raise my arm, my, my ribs have to move up. And if I'm doing a lot of reaching up, I have to clean, clean something up top. You know, my wife's making me wash the windows, and then I'm, next thing I know, I have back pain. And that's because I'm reaching up all the time, and I'm moving. You know, I don't have shoulder mobility. Where am I going to move from? Right? I'm going to move from the back. And I'm just going to do all this to reach up, and my back's going to be hurting. So what's the treatment? All right. Well, at first, rest. Don't move the back. Stretch the pecs. Stretch your shoulder so that you can move your shoulder without having to move your ribs. Right? And that's going to, again, you're moving along the line. So while the pain might be from coming from the back in this case, the problem might be from a lack of shoulder mobility. Okay? The lower cross is kind of the, um, another example. In this case, it's someone with, the, if, you're, if, you're, if we call it anterior pelvic tilt, basically you're kind of, we call it, um, your low back is kind of too arched. So if you're sitting a lot, your hip flexors get really tight. That's this muscle right here, right? So if you're walking around, it's someone with this kind of a stooped posture, kind of leaning forward a little bit. So just like this. And if I need to stand up, I kind of have to move them back again. Right? So again, the treatment isn't just ice massage the back. It's get flexibility in the hip flexors that are too tight. And that's the only way you're going to fix this long term. Making sense? A little bit? Okay. And here, you can look through it again, but it's just a, a list of the muscles that are short. And what, what's really interesting is that um, the, the division of what we call tonic muscles and phasic muscles. Um, the way I remember it is like your tonic muscles is when you're born, we're kind of squished up and trying to fit in the womb, right? So we're here in this position, like the fetal position. So you're comfortable here. These, these muscles that pull you in, they're the ones that develop first. What happens after an injury? What kind of movement pattern do you usually see? If you have any friends or seen anyone that dealt with a stroke or an injury, we kind of get in this protective mechanism here, right? And so you could just open each muscle at a time, or you can kind of work on this big opening, the big motions. And that's where all the phasic muscles are, because those are the ones that get lengthened and weaker. So you think just opening, opening up your rotator cuff, opening up, you know, stretching out your pecs, strengthening all the muscles in the back that help with this. And so that's a big pattern. So if you just think, don't be here. Be happy and confident, or I tell my students, walk like a boss. 
You know, you're going to be out here and opened up. That's going to improve your posture, and will help with movement because we want to be out here. We don't want to be here. This will lead to chronic tightening, and specific areas of, of which will eventually lead to pain. Okay. So again, a list of the upper upper cross muscles, which again, just go to here and don't do this too often, and just open up. Okay. Okay. Back to you. Yeah. You guys get in the picture now? The way these things are connected is a very predictable pattern. So when you have tightness in one area, don't just think about stretching that tightness out. You have to think about strengthening the other side that's not doing its job. Okay? And that's why people usually get stuck, and they're not able to kind of get over this hump of the particular impairment that they're suffering from because they're only looking at the stretching part. And it feels good for a little bit, but it's short-term fix. You have to do that in addition to the strengthening of those phasic muscles Kenny's talking about to really get the full picture. Okay, So when we talk about kind of injury recovery and some of the things that you go through throughout the lifespan, it's not just how you can get that one muscle stronger. It's like what Kenny's saying. Everything's linked together, together, and the way those things are linked together allows things to fire in a coordinated pattern. It all goes back to the Terminator again. All right? So what we do in the physical therapy realm, and what I'm going to show you guys in terms of interventions, is some things that you can do simply at home. So there's a lot of these different tools out there that you use to make your fascia less densified, less sticky. Okay? And one of those tools is the foam roller. You guys have you know, said that you guys have used the foam roller in the past. But all of these different tools are out there now, and that's a big market for that, especially because the sports medicine world has really kind of drawn attention to this and people say oh I use this because you know Steph Curry used this or I use this because you know a 49er player showed on their Instagram that they were using this too and so there's these different tools that you can use so these are all different types of tools that are out on the market and they can cost anywhere from $8 which is sometimes these plastic gua sha tools to $2,000 which is a set of these metal tools okay and there's all different types and all different kind of marketing combinations that go with it. At the end of the day, it's really important to remember that the fascial mobility relates back to hydration and layers and space. All right? And there's lots of ways of doing that. Suction cups are the next kind of hype between that. Um, and it's a lot of, you know, some of the stage that the sports medicine world is drawn to that. So one of the questions I have for people when I present some of these things is foam rolling, it's great. And it is a strategy to help promote some of those kind of mobility issues. But when we think about the way each of those layers needs to glide, we need space, right? And if you think about most of the things you get done to your body, most of those things are compressive in nature, okay? Foam rolling is rolling on something and kind of squeezing it a little bit to create, hopefully, more mobility because more fluid will come in and kind of reorganize some of the structures of some of those layers. But foam rolling is still a compressive nature. Massage mostly is, in, if you think about it, a compressive nature modality, okay? And so some of those changes are great, but they're short-term changes. You need to do the soft tissue mobility things that we're talking about here and what we're going to promote in the physical therapy clinic, but also you need to strengthen some of the things that aren't doing their job so you get the synergistic activity between the two. Okay? And some of those responses from a physiology standpoint are that you get this hyperemia after you have an effect of like foam rolling or doing a scraping tool or getting a massage, meaning you get a lot of blood flow in that area and it flushes out some of the kind of metabolic byproducts that are stuck there. But it also helps bring in nutrition for some of the tissues that are not getting as healthily fed as they should, meaning metabolism will improve in that area. Okay. 
Um, and this is just saying that some of the other reason you feel better afterwards is because that particular pain that you went through is a counter irritant to the pain that you usually suffer from. Meaning, if you do something to massage out your thighs or your IT band and it hurts a little bit, it changes the pain fibers that are running up into your brain saying, ooh, this feels different, and you ignore the other pain that you're used to chronically having. Now, is that a long-term or short-term fix, do you think? It's a short-term fix, okay? At some point, you have to pay the piper, and you have to go back to opening up the way you're meant to be, okay? At some point, you have to learn how to move better, and that's what physical therapy can provide for you, okay? And so we're going to draw attention back to something else that's decompressive in nature, okay? So I don't like that I use these things that make dots all over people. Actually, I kind of do. It's kind of cool to kind of draw attention to. But this is the best thing i found because if you think about all those layers, I've been talking about all this lecture, this is the only thing i found that can pull on layers instead of pushing on layers. Because if you think about massage, if you think about joint mobilization, if you think about foam rolling, if you think about scraping, all those things are compressive in nature. And this is the only thing i found that can be able to pull on some of the tissue uh, layers to create more space. Okay? And we saw how important space was before. And so we started using these techniques at Cal in about 2008, 2009. So we've been doing that for a long time here in the Bay Area. And it just got really, really popular, I'd say, in the last three or four years because of Major League Baseball and because of the Olympics that have been happening. So we started with Natalie Coughlin. And the real reason Michael Phelps had it is because that, well, not that guy, but actually the, the cups have been passed down from swimmer to swimmer because they say, oh, I feel a lot better when I get this particular intervention done to me. And we, we actually call this intervention here in the physical therapy world myofascial decompression. Okay, So cupping is more of a traditional Chinese medicine modality where they leave the cups on statically and they leave it on from 5 minutes to maybe even 15 or 20 minutes. When we put cups on an athlete using myofascial decompression, we get the athlete to move through that range. So we're combining the soft tissue things we're talking about with what Kenny talks about, movement re-education. And that's what myofascial decompression is, and that's why it's different than traditional cupping. Okay? So when you see it on Team USA athletes, or you see it on Cal athletes, or you see it on basketball players or baseball players, they're doing movement with the cup on there. And it's a very different approach, very different modality, and a very different reasoning for why you would get that done than traditional kind of Chinese medicine approach to it. Okay? And it seems to be very effective for things. So I'm trying to study this more at UCSF, and we just got funding for a grant to actually look more at structures. We're going to look at the IT band of runners with it. Okay? So this was a study I actually did last summer where I took a cup and I put it right here on the trap. So everybody feel that trap knot that you had, right? I took a cup and I put it right on there and I put a patient in the MRI okay? because I wanted to see what happened with that. And we had never seen this. There's no actual journal article that documents this anywhere in the literature. And so I put that on there, and then I put him into the MRI. The drum roll ha happens, and this is what it looks like. Okay? So it's really fascinating because you can see, what am I doing here? I'm creating space where there wasn't as much space in terms of tissue layers from that muscle to that muscle. Right? So it's all about space. So that's why we use these negative pressure devices on athletes like in Major League Baseball, like in the Olympics, like in basketball because it creates more space, all right? Simplified, that's why we do it. It's not a cupping, it's not for toxins. The media really got it all wrong when they covered the Olympics. They said toxins and thousand-year-old approach and these things. This is actually stuff we just started using back in, you know, like I said, 2009, 2010 at Cal with the athletes there. And so really you can appreciate the space differences that you're gonna see while that's on there. So this is another view. So this is looking at the shoulder front to back. And you guys can see I have the patient in the MRI. This is before I actually pump up the cup on the actual patient. And then I put him back in the MRI with the cup pumped up, and it looks like that, right? Pretty dramatic. 
So when you get a lot of pressure in there, you're actually going to create a lot of decompression of that tissue. All right? And then I took them out of the MRI, took all the pressure out of the cup, and then I put them back into the MRI one more time, and it looked like this 30 minutes later. Okay? And that is a lot difference in thickness than that, right? And that's why they feel like they can reach a lot further. That's why Michael Phelps has an extra inch or two of reach, meaning generating more power on his actual catch phase of swimming than he did before that, because he feels that length. He feels that space difference, right? And you're going to feel a lot different in terms of your ability to sit up taller, because now the pecs don't restrict the ribs and have to pull them back, and your back doesn't hurt as much. But you have to pay the piper, and you have to strengthen the muscles that aren't doing their job. Okay? So you guys really see the take-home message of this lecture is move more to make the muscles fire that aren't doing the job while doing some of these soft tissue things to really make it more mobile. Space, right, between each layer. Pretty crazy, though, huh? So this is actually stuff that's just in submission. It hasn't been published yet. It's really exciting new frontier stuff that we're trying to do here at UCSF. And you can see there's a lot of pressure that you can use for a lot of different reasons. So this is a knee patient that has arthrofibrosis. You guys know what arthrofibrosis is? Maybe Basically, joint is just kind of sticky with all kinds of fibrous connected tissue and honey sticking all those layers together. And he's been like this for 10 years, and he gained probably about 15 to 20 degrees of motion in the last three months working with this because all these layers need more space. Okay? And we've promoted more space with this, even on chronic adhesions, even on things that have been on somebody for five years or ten years. You can have some promotion of increased range of motion. It's much easier if it was just six months ago as compared to six years ago, but you always have the ability to change because the human body is dynamic and it's plastic and it's amazing at what it can do okay? at all ages, no matter what age you're doing. Okay? So in summary, kind of what we looked at today in backwards fashion of what we've talked about, why does some of this kind of fascial mobility really improve? Why does it work in terms of trying to institute modalities to improve space and improve mobility? <clears throat> well, if you're looking at Yonda, you're going to kind of break up some of the tonic-type facilitated muscles and hopefully increase the firing of those phasic muscles, the ones not doing their job. Okay? You can also decrease some of the stickiness, the densification in each of those layers. If you're thinking about that Thomas Meyer or the monkey hanging from the branch, right? You can decrease some of the stickiness of each of those little segments that is getting sticky. Okay? If you think about trigger points, some of the knots that we touched and thought about earlier, then you can bring in more blood flow, flush out some of the things that aren't supposed to be there, get in improvements in metab uh, metabolism in the local area. And then really importantly, I think, is increasing that mobility. Remember the catch-it bottle with George, right? Trying to put energy into the system to get resistance out of the system so that you can move more freely, okay? Because until you do that, your mo motion is going to be restricted and impeded because there's a resistance in the system. You have to put energy into that somehow, either moving more or foam rolling or doing suction cups, doing that myofascial decompression, or even just kind of stretching more and doing yoga so that you can get a decrease in that viscosity of the ground substance, hopefully. Okay? So think about decreasing your viscosity. And remember, at the same time that you move more and you do all these things, you change the way your body feels, right? You're changing the pain that the central nervous system interprets as bad, and you're changing it into things that feel good. Okay? And that's really the take-home message of it. And we have to look above and below and front to back and which muscles are doing their job and not doing their job because at the end of the day, where your pain is, is not usually the root of the problem to begin with. The root of the problem often is somewhere else. Because mostly where the pain is, is a secondary compensation. Okay? Think about that cycle I showed you guys earlier, right? You're stuck in a cycle. And to break out of that, 
you have to find out how to move the root better. Okay? And you'll feel that once you start moving a little bit more efficiently. And that's where that balance comes in. All right? That's kind of my spiel for today. And these are a lot of different articles you can read and check out. This is what I had to read. This is like 10% of what I had to read for all these things that we learned about. Okay? Thank you, guys. Questions? Not bad time. Yes? I'm just curious. How does this suction thing work? So the... It's the same as moxie buck. Yeah. So the question is, how does this suction thing work? Meaning myofascial decompression in our Western medicine-based terms. Um, so basically what we use in the clinic is a pneumatic device now. So it's a pump that has a valve, and it sucks the pressure out of a plastic cup that has another valve on top of it. And basically you can increase pressure by pulling a little bit of a gun, and maybe four or five pumps will pull all the air out of that particular vessel. And then you have that drawn-up muscle like you saw in the MRI picture that I showed you. It's a little bit... It can hurt depending on how much pressure you use, okay? Hurt is a very, um, how do you say, uh, you know, subjective experience, okay? Um, with my athletes, they don't think it hurts at all. But again, they play football and rugby and baseball and lots of different things, okay? I think it hurts very, very badly, and I don't like it myself. I scream when I get it done, but I know it's good for me, so I do it sometimes. Okay, um, But yeah, it's different than Chinese medicine, which often uses fire cupping to kind of burn the you know, oxygen in that area and create a vacuum inside a glass cup. Um, they use both, and we use mostly just the pneumatic one. Fire is kind of dangerous in a clinic that has a lot of fire sprinklers and things like that. So, also, I'll add on. Um, one of the big differences, if you've ever had a traditional cupping, uh, when they use the heat, it's equivalent to about, say, half a pump. Yeah. We can get much more. We can increase the pressure. And I would say... I am a little more aggressive with it than maybe acupuncture because we're making people move while the cup's on them. So we can put the cup on, and it's separating layers, and we're thinking in very mechanical terms. But now we're having them move through something and getting an even bigger stretch. Whereas traditional cupping, you kind of just stay in there, playing music, and you go to sleep for 10, 15 minutes, and then the, the therapist comes back and then takes the cups off. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So. Great question. Thank you. Other questions? We'll go right here. Oh, that's a very complex question. Um, the answer is yes. Oh, sorry. The question is, is this common knowledge amongst PT practices all across the country and all across the different disciplines, as well as, I would say, orthopedics or surgery or different things? And I would say this is definitely a pendulum that swung this direction in maybe the last five or ten years more than anything. Um, so older clinicians that don't like to stay up on literature as much aren't going to be very familiar with this at all. It's definitely something that is a little more cutting edge that we're trying to do here at UCSF to understand the mechanics of why these things do happen and help. Um, so it is a little bit more cutting edge, as a lot of things that we try to promote here are. Um, but we're seeing really interesting results physiologically based on some of the studies that we're doing with it. So the answer is, yeah, you have to kind of shop around to find people that understand some of the things we're talking about here. Uh, this next one was that right there. Um, I was interested in uh, that nutrient exchange that we're talking about um, oh, when you were talking about the viscosity and, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. trying to get through and went right by me. Okay. So she was asking about the nutrient exchange that happens when tissues are viscous. And just so think about something that has a lot of 
tension in a system that you're trying to get a fluid to go through, right? Some type of membrane that allows things to go through and some things not to go through. And it's got a lot of pressure already in it. And you just can't get that pressure to go through, so you're not able to exchange nutrients because of that. So it's basically a viscosity pressure issue that you're talking about. And so when you have excessive amounts of pressure in that area, you're not allowing things to kind of flow through it the way it's naturally meant to go. So that's a simplified version of it, I would say. So you're talking about oxygen coming in, metabolic byproducts coming out most of the time. Um, so exchanges, you know, increasing the ATP production of that particular cellular area for the mitochondrial turnover for ATP to actually provide energy for the system in that local area is impeded because it needs things to come in to con- constantly turn that mechanism or that machine over with it. Yeah. Yeah. Here in the front. Um, as we get older, I see that our mobility gets more Yeah. So the uh, the question is the age old question of when you get older, why does it just get harder and harder to increase or uh, maintain your mobility? Kenny, I'm going to turn it over to you for that one. <laughs> you have some physiological explanations. For instance, like in the spine, you'll see um, the shrinking of the discs, right? And so it makes some of the joints approximate. Um, you have some typical arthritic changes. Um, I think the biggest thing, though, is that. You're not guaranteed to lose all of your mobility, but if you don't move, um, if your typical movement patterns don't involve moving to your end range, you will slowly lose that. Right. So it's it's a combination of yes, you do lose some ability to move, but if you compound that by adding on by not moving, it'll it'll kind of be even faster. So you can reverse some of that process if you start being more active. You start. You know, moving through your full pain-free range, you can get some of it back. And again, a lot of what we consider to be, you know, being tight or shortened muscles is not really a, a true shortening, but is your central nervous system regulating how much you're able to stretch or move because it's like, oh, it's painful, I don't want to move there. But really, we just do something to it and it changes how we sense it and then later we move. So when you're stretching, that's like the instant thing, like we're not lengthening your tissues, you're just changing your perception how long how long your tissues are, and now you can move farther. Does that kind of make sense? So I would say yes, we are. You, you do lose some mobility, but not nearly as much as uh, common perception. Yeah. Any supplements or gels in the research that increase I wish I could turn that over to Kenny. The question is: Are there supplements or gels or things you can get at Costco for this? Uh, the answer for me is no. Um, I wish I could take a pill to get my muscles bigger every day, but I have to go to the gym five days a week. Okay, um, Hydration, I think, is one thing. But supplements, the, the science on most of the supplemental kind of uh, consumption of things is very, very thin. You know, Even things like glucosamine or chondritin sulfate or some of these things, joint juice, um, very thin in terms of the mechanisms of it. We don't even understand how it's processed in the stomach and going through the digestive system to get out to the joints to actually have the effect that we think they may have. Um, so most of it is marketing. We don't have that breadth of knowledge to study in terms of nanotechnology of what's going on with those things yet. Okay. Uh, great question I wish I had the answer for. There was one more question in the back before we come this way again. Myofascial decompression. Yeah.
can see why athletes might jump on it because, I mean, look at how athletes jumped on steroids years ago. And Luckily, not the same deleterious effects, but yes. Well, but <laughs> my question is, we don't have a long-term study on this. We don't know what the long-term effects are. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So the question, yeah, the question is, what are the long-term effects of something like this that is pretty aggressive modality to the human tissues, right? Is that kind of the question? And it kind of comes back to, well, we don't understand the effects. Remember um, uh, four years ago and, and eight years ago, the kinesio tape that they had on the volleyball players' shoulders and, and abs and things like that. So there, this is kind of the new kind of hit fad for athletes because they see it as the next thing that will give them an edge. And mo- much of it probably is psychological for them. Um, so we don't have to push the muscle that hard in terms of the amount of pressure that we use when we're working with an athlete. I'll work with a football player the day of a game before the game because he wants to feel loose, right? And so that MRI image you saw isn't the amount of pressure I'll pump up on somebody like that. Maybe it's only two pumps, whereas that was 10 pumps. And so we do things that is a little bit less um, because it does make the body feel different. And like Kenny's saying, at the end of the day, you have a large, large component of the central nervous system factor in terms of how you feel. So some of it is physical that we're doing, but a lot of it is actually the mental you know, changes that happen from a central nervous system standpoint. Uh, what was that? Yeah, and actually we're trying to study some of the safety mechanisms of it. So we're trying to see what the tissues happen and then see what happens 48 hours later. Nobody's studied these things yet, and so we're trying to do that data now. Or five years later, yeah. I guarantee it won't be as bad as steroids, okay? We'll see, but I'm pretty sure of that. Yeah, question there. Morning stiffness Is morning stiffness a physiologic problem? Uh, Oh, fascial problem. Um, Yeah, there's actually a really interesting video you guys can watch if you want to write this down. The Fuzz speech, if you Google that or YouTube that. The Fuzz speech is an anatomist named Gil Hadley that comes out with this idea that when you wake up in the morning, you want to kind of move and stretch because all your fascia during the night is a little stickier when you wake up the next morning, right? And so the the lack of motion for eight hours or nine hours, hopefully, if you're getting that, um, is really helpful to start gaining that mobility again, right? Because if all those layers have not had a lot of movement to promote that mobility, that exchange of fluid back and forth and in and out, then you lose some of that as you kind of go through that going through the sleep at night and then waking up the next morning. That's a theory. It's not actually you know, medically proven or anything, but it does make sense. And you think about what I said. You're stuck in a sling for six weeks, right? Some of your range of motion loss is not because the muscles are shorter. They haven't shortened. Some of it's just the fascial mobility that hasn't been accessed for a long time. So it makes sense in that realm, too. We'll go here, and then we'll go back there. Yeah. Oh, yours. Oh, yeah. Um, just kind of a silly question, but vibrating. Mm-hmm. Do you just drink more, or is there a strategy as far as um, when you might drink water or what you drink? Or- yeah, hydrate. The question is hydration. Is it a certain level that you need to hydrate? Is it that 64 magic ounces that they say, you know, whatever nutrition guidelines come out the year before the year after? Um, I think the science is really out on that still. There's no really baseline that you need for a particular body weight. There's actually a researcher out of Irvine, I think, that just started talking about hydration, that we push too much hydration on people, and sometimes the thirst is the thing that actually is the cue, and you don't need to kind of hydrate prior to thirst. That thirst is a very good homeostatic cue from your 
body saying, this is what I need right now. Um, and the idea of not getting to that point ever because you prehydrate is not necessarily scientifically proven at all. So the, the jury's out on that one. That's a good, good question as well. Yeah, in the back. Thanks. So it sounds like the fascial, the, the fascial plane online is important, and, and I think it's interesting. Yeah. But with the cupping, you're isolating the segment of the fascia, it sounds like. So I know this is a PT lecture, but since Kenny brought up working with a massage therapist, mm-hmm. what's your thought on rolfing, which mm-hmm. basic principle is about realigning the entire fascial plane versus segmental? Yeah, so the question is, compared to myofascial decompression, what do you think of other massage interventions like rolfing? I think they're very, very good because you're trying to kind of pull away areas of fascia that are stickier. Have you guys ever experienced rolfing, anybody, or heard of rolfing? So Ida Rolf, very great pioneer in the kind of soft tissue world of things, and a lot of things that we do in the sports medicine world still are based on things that Ida Rolf came out with. Um, And so we don't do cupping because we don't, leave it there and just have them sit there. Uh, Myofascial decompression introduces kind of negative pressure to an area, but it's not just one decompressive device. It's multiple devices. That's why Michael Phelps had three or four marks on his shoulder or three or four marks down his lats. So with those three or four different interventional devices going through motion, it kind of increases mobility in a larger kind of scale. So instead of just a really pinpoint isolation thing, the way your hands would with rolfing, this gets a larger scale of that fascial plane to kind of be more mobile all at one time. So it's just more efficient. Rolfing is a great tool, but it's really, really time consuming and you're working on one area at a time. With the myofascial decompression stuff, we are able to do a larger kind of fascial plane all at one time and improve that motion um, because you're dynamically moving through a pattern. And it's all about the pattern at the end of the day. Yeah, we're going to have to wrap up questions. One more question, last one. Any, oh, that's it. We're done. We'll <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.